Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. Today's scriptures, um, Genesis 37, 2 to 24. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of, it, more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out of the field. We were binding sheaves of grain out of the field, out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock, flocks near um, Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, 
there was no water in it. This is the word of the Lord. Everything happens for a reason. Can I just see a show of hands if you've heard that phrase somewhere before? Yes, a sea of hands. Don't worry about it. Everything happens for a reason. Perhaps you've been on the receiving end of that tidbit of wisdom. Perhaps you were going through a really difficult breakup and someone came along and put their hand on your shoulder and they said, cheer up, everything happens for a reason. And perhaps you poked them in the eye and (laughs) said, if that's true, you should be able to work out the reason for your sore eye. It's true. I hear it's true. I hear an amen. But more seriously, maybe you've wondered to yourself in your quiet moments, how have my life experiences, the positive ones and the negative ones, all the different things that have happened in my life, how have they shaped who I am? Does everything happen for a reason? In my family, uh, we always knew that my youngest brother, Peter, would be the entrepreneur in our family. When we were kids, we would go to garage sales and he would pick things up for 30 or 40 cents. It was the 80s and 90s, so a while ago now. But he'd sell these things to his mates at school for five bucks, maybe 10 bucks, whatever he could get, a good profit margin. Uh, When we'd all finished high school and we sort of were working out what was coming next, Pete came up with the idea, excuse me, a business idea for an organic meat business. Now, they're everywhere now. But uh, at the time, it was actually a pretty innovative idea. Problem was, he had the idea, but he didn't have the money to fund this idea. Anyway, one night, he's out with his mates uh, at a pub, catching up with some old schoolmates, and they're playing a game of pool. He's lining up his shot, and he hits someone with the pool cue, someone standing behind him. So, of course, he apologizes, and Pete being Pete, he gets chatting. And one thing leads to another, and he discovers that this guy is a rather wealthy businessman, who likes to finance other people's business ventures. So Pete tells him his idea, and he asks Pete, would 10 grand be enough to get you going? And the rest is history. Pete started up his organic meat business, got it going, and sold it for a profit to his brother. Not me, another brother, another sucker. Is this being recorded? Anyway. Everything happens for a reason. These are the kinds of things that happen in our lives, and we ask ourselves, what's going on here? And I want to consider this afternoon whether this saying that we've all heard before lines up with a Christian worldview. In other words, is this a theologically sound statement that we should stake our lives on? Does everything happen for a reason? So before we dive into the scripture that we've had read for us, let's say a prayer And rather than sort of closing down, we sometimes close down when we pray. It's either he's saying some nice words at the start or the end. I would encourage you to close your eyes and look up uh, and just open up your life to God and let that be a symbol of our openness, our minds, our hearts, our whole lives. Let's pray. Lord, we humbly ask you now that you would speak to us. Not the same message for everyone here, of course, But I pray that each of us would hear something life-giving, your living word, something relevant to our current circumstances. And I pray that the words I've prepared would make sense to all of us here. Amen. 
Well, we've had this story read to us. <clears throat> I hope you're paying attention. I now want to look a little bit closer at the characters in the story. Apologies for my voice. I'm not sure what's going on there. I think I've picked something up during the week. Uh, that sounds, that's a terrible thing to say when there's a pandemic around, but that's, that's old news now. First, let's look at Joseph. Joseph is young and naive. Yeah? Now, that's not to say that everyone who's young is naive, and it's not to say that everyone who's naive is young. Neither of those statements are true, and I'm not making either of them. But Joseph is both. He is presented to us as young and naive. He lacks wisdom. He doesn't understand how people work, how they think. He doesn't understand the dangers of the world that he lives in. And in verses 2 to 4, we're told some key things about this lad. This is typical in Hebrew narrative. You get a sense of the characters, and it just happens very quickly. And so you have to pay attention to the details. But if you have a look at the details, he's 17. He's helping his older brothers manage their family flocks. Thank you, Lucy. And at some point, he has gone to his dad and ratted them out about something. As verse 2 puts it there, he had brought a bad report of them, of his brothers, to his dad. And as someone who grew up with three brothers, not 10 or 11, but just three, I can tell you that the tattletale reputation is not a good one. In addition to that, uh, it then says that Joseph was his favorite, his dad's favorite, and that Jacob made a public display of this fact. Not with a private gift that he could keep in his tent, you know, not a, not a poster of Taylor Swift or uh, a Star Wars Duna cover, but a coat, a sports jacket, a pair of expensive trainers, if you like, something that he wears all the time just to remind him and the brothers that he, and not they, all day, every day, is dad's favorite. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but these are not very good parenting skills. I see some young children around, so take note. <clears throat> but we'll get to Jacob in a moment. Not surprisingly, in verse 4, we're also told that because Joseph is a tattletale and because he gets this special treatment from his dad, Joseph's brothers hate him. They don't mildly dislike him. They don't uh, find that he can be a bit annoying at times. They hate him. So we get a pretty clear uh, picture in just two or three verses of where Joseph stands in relation to his brothers and to his dad. And you know, the strangest thing perhaps is that Joseph is oblivious, isn't he? He's just happily living his life. I mean, do you, do you know anyone like that? I wonder if anyone comes to mind. Someone who rubs you up the wrong way but has no idea how annoying they are, which only makes them even more annoying. There's no one in my mind as I say these words. Look, we all know this kind of person, right? And look at this. Joseph, he just blatantly tells his brothers his dream as if, as if they would be interested in the slightest Look at verse 5 here. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Joseph basically says, hey, guys, guys, gather around. Listen, I had a dream last night, and look, the long and the short of it is that I'm going to be much more successful than any of you. No, 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 wait, not done yet. Come, come, come back. Gather around. Don't walk away. There's more, there's more. 
In fact, there will come a day when all of you, mum and dad included, are going to bow down before me. Isn't that incredible? Anyway, that's it. Just letting you know, keeping you in the loop. 17-year-old Joseph doesn't understand people very well, does he? That's Joseph. What about Jacob? Well, Jacob isn't characterized in a very positive light either. First of all, he favors one son so obviously that he's going to cause jealousy, hatred, and rifts within the family. And secondly, in spite of the fact that Joseph's brothers hate him because he brought a tattletale report to to his father, Jacob asks him in verse 14 to go and check on his brothers and bring back a report. Hey, Joe, come here. You know that intel you got me on your bros? You reckon you could do that for me again? Great. Does Jacob really think that this is going to help the family unity? In a nutshell, what we have here, what the narrator has presented us with at the very beginning of this story is a dysfunctional family. A dysfunctional family. A naive youth lacking basic social skills, hated by his brothers, and a father who dotes on him and couldn't care less about how that affects the rest of the family. So this introduction to the life of Joseph comes to a rather sad conclusion in verses 23 and 24. And his situation is summed up in language that's not merely descriptive. It's good to remember that Hebrew narrative, Old Testament narrative, is always artistic. It's always poetic. It's always playful in its language. And sometimes there are more meanings than one. Look at the key phrases that are used here. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They stripped him of the identity his father had established for him as the special son. To make it really clear, the narrator states, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that he wore. You know, that special one. Let's just be really clear about that. Joseph's identity... Beloved son with a special lease on life, big dreams about the future, his identity has been stripped away. And the other phrase in verse 24 is just as striking, I think, the pit was empty. No matter how silly Joseph might have seemed to us in that introduction, telling his brothers about his dreams, wearing his special coat, wherever he goes, getting lost in a field, where are my brothers, anyone seen my brothers? I mean, it's almost comical, but what happens to him here is absolutely tragic. And there are no words to describe this kind of betrayal in a family. And as Joseph lays there in that hole in the ground without food or water, listening to his brothers, sitting up above, eating their dinner, his mind must have been spinning. He definitely knew what his brothers thought of him now. His world had come undone. I wonder how many of us here tonight have experienced that level of betrayal. Or in what ways has your trust been broken? Because that's the expression we use, isn't it? Breaking trust. I think it happens in families a lot. Mum and Dad, I didn't expect you to ever mess up like this. Brother or sister, I never thought you, I never thought... Imagine that you could let me down in the way you have. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's actually the critical question, isn't it? That is the critical question 
when you are going through this kind of experience? What are you going to do? Are you ever going to trust again? Are you going to curl up in a ball and shut the world out? Are you going to say, "Ah, I've been hurt, so for the rest of my life, I have an excuse for my short temper because that thing happened. All of us in this room are going to be hurt in our lifetimes. It is inevitable. And many of us have already experienced significant pain, loss, and injustice. But listen, I want to suggest to you this afternoon that one of the most important decisions that you can make when you are hurting is the decision about how you will relate to God in your pain. How will you relate to God in your pain. More than that, and this is worth the price of the ticket, if you're going to write anything down, it's got to be this. When you experience something unexpected, you are in a critical moment in your life. You're in it. You won't always realize how important that moment is because it's usually rather stressful and you will want to get out of it. But let me tell you this, and it comes from Joseph's life and my own life experiences, and I'm sure many others, your choices in that moment will have a huge impact, a huge impact on whether or not the thing happened for a reason. Some of you are thinking, wait, you're talking about the past and the future and the present all at once. What's going on, Paul? Let me just repeat that for you, and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Your choices in that critical moment, that moment of trauma, pain, and difficulty, injustice, your choices in that moment will have a huge impact on whether or not the thing happened for a reason. And we see this play out in Joseph's life. But he's not the only one to teach us this lesson in the Bible. And so I want to just step into another book just for a moment, just to show you that this is a biblical principle and not one just ripped out of Joseph's life. If you think about Bible characters who've experienced extreme stress or suffering or trauma, who comes to mind? Okay, lots of you at once. Job, yes. Job experiences severe hardship, right? The whole book is based around it. And if you just read the first two chapters, you'll get the sense of what's going on. There's 42. Just read the first two and then skip to the end. Uh, No, I didn't say that out loud. Oh, shame on me. The one thing... That Job does differently to his so-called friends in those 42 chapters of talking about God is that he refers to God in the second person. In other words, he uses the word you. To put it differently, he prays. I I was amazed at this when I, I searched the Hebrew. I mean, you've got these tools now. You can do this sort of stuff. His friends don't refer to God in the second person once. Not once, but Job throughout the book just continues to pray. Now, the things he says are not always easy to hear, but at the end of the book, God says of Job, you spoke rightly of me and your friends didn't. What's the key difference? In his pain, Job talks to God, which is why at the end of the book, God is pleased with Job, even though he said some pretty outrageous things. Job spoke to God. And that says a lot because in our day and age, you will know that people go through a hard time and what do they say? I I don't believe in God anymore. I can't believe in God anymore. 
And when you think about it, what they're saying is, if God won't behave according to my expectations, I'm not believing in God. Is that really a good test for whether or not God exists? Is it really about what kind of God you want God to be? Do you really want a God that small? For people who believe God should always fix pain, always make people comfortable, always take things away that are difficult and make sure that we're happy, pain stops them from believing. For people like Job who believe that God is present in our pain and discomfort, maybe even in a special way, for God, that God hasn't gone anywhere, right? But it's actually closer to us. For people like that, pain deepens our faith. Job teaches us how to relate to God in our pain, and to put it bluntly, I think the message of the whole book, keep talking to God. Keep talking has to be part of its message because it's 42 chapters, right? Anyway, let's come back to Joseph because we kind of left him in a hole in the ground. To answer the question that I'm raising tonight, I'm going to have to go beyond chapter 37, and I hope that's okay with whoever preaches next week, but we need the big picture to answer a question like, does everything happen for a reason? As we keep reading Joseph's story, we're told three times in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. The point being made again and again for us to pick up on is that Joseph may have been betrayed by family. He may have hit on really hard times. He may be suffering intense injustice. But he's not alone. He is not alone. You are not alone. The Lord is with you. In fact, from that low, low point, literally a hole in the ground, Joseph begins his ascent to greatness with the Lord always by his side. Until eventually, spoiler alert, by the end of the book, he is the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, right beside Pharaoh. Which brings us back to where we started. Does everything happen for a reason? But before we get there, let's consider a related question that's a little bit more the sort of question we hear in the church. Is everything that happens God's will? Now, I raise this because I can't count the number of times I hear Christians say things like, I'm going to go for this job, and if I get it, I'll know that it was God's will for me to have it. Hmm. Or, I tried to start up a charity because I thought, I really believed that God was prompting me in that direction, but then the bank said no to the loan, and so I took that as a closed door, and no. Hmm. That kind of thinking, if I may be direct, if there is no prayer involved, and that is a key phrase here, if there is no prayer involved basically says, when things go smoothly, I understand it to be God's will. When things are difficult, I understand it to not be God's will. So I will be direct, because I don't know if I'm going to get another invite. There is zero discernment in that process. We do need to think about how we express these things and say these things as Christians. 
because everything happens for a reason sounds dangerously close, close to everything that happens is God's will, and that's fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. Fatalism is the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. If it is your fate to be bitten by a dog today, a fatalist would say, it doesn't matter how you plan to get home. You could walk or get on a bike or get in a car or get on a train. You're going to get bitten by a dog because that is your fate. And it's very important that Christianity does not get confused with fatalism. A couple quick points about things that we believe as Christians. We believe that God has given us the gift of freedom, free will. We choose our way through life. You can go in 50 different directions. When you reach my old age, you will look back and see all the turns that you could have taken and might have taken and that you were free to take. We also believe that prayer invites God to do things that are out of the ordinary. And you're ready for this. Prayer invites God to do things which he would not have done otherwise. Right? Chew on that. I'm sure there's a class at Trinity that gets into that. We also believe that our actions and the actions of every person on this planet have consequences. Even before God gets involved, right? The Bible is so clear about this. Actions have consequences. It's in the very fabric of the created order. And when we push against God and choose the wrong, we tear at that fabric. Now, most people, if you ask them, is everything that happens God's will, they'd say, no, no, of course not. Wars happen. Depression happens. Suicide happens. And those things are obviously not God's will for those people. Some bad things happen just because people act maliciously. Murder, rape, thief, uh, theft, betrayal. Some bad things happen because we live in a world that is now broken. Cancer, miscarriage, birth defects, natural disasters. In any one moment, there are a million reasons why a bad thing might happen. It's only later, when we look back, with the benefit of hindsight, that we might sometimes say, oh, maybe that happened for a reason. Because looking back, we can see that since the bad event occurred, God has been at work in our lives. And because of the wonderful things that God is now doing, we can sometimes say, ah, that thing that happened, that terrible thing that happened, is becoming quite meaningful. But that's a theology of redemption right there, that God takes things that are broken and restores them with a sense of purpose and meaning. It is the most significant thing to me about my faith. You see, the story of Joseph goes from Genesis 37 to 50. It's a big story. It's one of the longest narratives about one person in the Old Testament. In chapter 37, as we've seen, Joseph is a naive boy, humiliated and hated. By chapter 50, he's the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, a man of extraordinary power and influence and wisdom. How on earth did he get from there to here? He didn't make that journey successfully just because he has the gift of understanding dreams, which he does. 
It's not just because he's intelligent, which he is. It's not just because he's good-looking, which he is. It's not just because he's a man of integrity, which he is. All of those things are mentioned by the storyteller because they're all important. They're all relevant to the story. But the only reason that Joseph's life takes him from a pit of despair to a throne over Egypt is because the Lord is faithful to Joseph and Joseph is faithful to the Lord. It is that simple. It's that simple, folks. That, my friends, is why his life is radically changed. One of the most memorable moments and memorable verses in the entire Joseph story comes at the end of everything. In Genesis 50, verse 10, when he's back talking to his brothers and he says these incredible words. Even though you intended to do harm to me, that word harm is the same word for evil, you intended to do evil to me, God intended it for good. Why did this bad thing happen to Joseph? Why was he thrown in this pit? Joseph makes it as clear as anyone can. Because his brothers intended to harm him. They had no intentions to propel him towards greatness. They wanted to hurt him. They hated him. They threw him in the pit. And why then, looking back so many years later, is Joseph able to say with such confidence, God turned the tragedies of my life into something good? Quite simply, because he can see, as he looks back on the tapestry of his life, that God has weaved so many of those things for good. Joseph's every decision was faithfulness to the Lord. And the Lord's every decision is always faithfulness to us. So his awful circumstances become a series of opportunities. Remember what I said earlier. When you're in that moment, it's a critical choice that you face. Talk to God through it. Keep the relationship alive through it. It's so sad to me that a lot of people turn away from God right when he is so close, so close. Again, notice the, the language here. The Hebrew language is so playful. The word that's translated in our Bibles as intended, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, is a word that at its root really means to weave. You intended to, to weave, to fabricate evil by throwing me in that well. But God weaved it into a bigger picture, into something beautiful. Isn't that profound? Again and again, I have found that word and that image to be very powerful and meaningful in my life. God weaves his purposes into all kinds of events. And the darkest moments in my life have been the moments where I have felt God's presence most powerfully, almost tangibly. So to finish where we started, technically... It would be more accurate if we stopped saying everything happens for a reason, because it's not true. And we started saying this little phrase, often when bad things happen, God works in our lives in such a way that with the benefit of hindsight, those events become meaningful. I don't appreciate the chuckling. I'll be the first to admit it's not quite as catchy as everything happens for a reason. 
But I'm going to read it again, and then you're going to read it with me, because we're going to change the world by just saying this all the time. Often, when bad things happen, God works in our lives in such a way that with the benefit of hindsight, those events become meaningful. We'll leave that up there for a second. I don't know what hole in the ground you feel you're in at the moment. And I certainly don't know whether you've stumbled it into yourself, stumbled it into it, or whether you feel that you're pushed. There's a lot of different things that could be going on in a room this size. Betrayal of trust, an eating disorder, an addictive compulsion towards self-harm, pornography, loneliness, intense loneliness, social anxiety, Perhaps you're feeling just confused and overwhelmed about how uncertain things are at the moment. Whatever hole you might find yourself in, the Lord is in there with you. And I say that with complete sincerity, not as some clever little phrase that I think would fit into the sermon. I've been there. Now, no doubt some people are thinking right now, God might be near to someone else, but there's no way he would draw near to me right now. Not true. Not true. Yes, he would, and yes, he does, and yes, God is nearer to you now than at any other time. God is especially near us in our pain. What we learn from the cross, if nothing else, is that God draws near to us in our pain. So if you want to see change and transformation in your life, I urge you, keep talking to him. Turn to him. And mark my words, if you press into Jesus at some point in the future, you will look back and you'll be able to say, often, when bad things happen, God works in our lives in such a way that with the benefit of hindsight, those events become meaningful. Let's say that together as we finish up here. Often, when bad things happen, God works in our lives in such a way that with the benefit of hindsight, those events become meaningful. Let me uh, close with a prayer and again, not as a way of closing down, but of opening up our lives for the week that's ahead. Thanks, Aaron. Let's pray. Feel free to take a moment just to reflect on what's going on in your own life. Don't push past it. Lord God, I thank you for your presence in this room with us now. We were reminded just before the service of your intense desire to live among us. Revelation 21.3 says the home of God is with people. That's been the trajectory of the biblical story from the outset, that you long to live among us. You want to be with us, within us. And I pray tonight that you would bring that alive for people in different ways. That people facing difficulties would see that you are not just with them, within them, that you are giving the graces that we need to keep pushing forward. 
Lord, we try so hard, we strive so hard, and yet you've done everything. So teach us what it means to surrender, to open our hands, to let go. And Holy Spirit, would you prompt us this week to keep talking, to keep praying. In Jesus' name, we commit our lives to you in this moment. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.